Lord, as we have already acknowledged today, we need you desperately. And I need you desperately as I preach today. It is a fearful thing to preach the word of God. Because, as you say in the book of James, not many should be teachers because of the greater strictness that will be, uh, will be measured by. And so I come here today with great fear and ask for your grace, Lord. Help us as hearers to also have that fear, that reverence, that awe, that we would not think that church is something that is just mundane, but that we would recognize your holiness our culpability, and your grace. We do pray today for our brothers and sisters in Canada. Lord, we are seen unfolding before our eyes the persecution of brothers and sisters who simply just want to meet at church together pastors being arrested for holding church services. I pray that you would help us, even as we recently went through a sermon series on persecution, that should you bring that here, that you would strengthen us and prepare us for that. And help us, should that come to us, that we would not be those people who sorrow without hope, but that we would have sorrow, and yet have hope in Christ. So help us now, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in sermon number three on our series in depression. And I do want to start off today with uh, kind of our outline. This kind of helps, hopefully, to put this uh, on the map of where we are, where we have been, where we are going. And so our series on the topic of depression has so far been this, a brief word on psychology, a biblical definition of depression, the many occasions of depression, which we'll be finishing up today and then jumping into the cause of depression, how to identify depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression, how to counsel those who are depressed, and the cure to depression. And so since, again, we've got a lot to cover today, let's just jump right into it and start off with the many occasions of depression. Last week, we touched on several of these occasions of depression, and I wasn't quite able to finish all of them, and so we're spilling over into this week a little bit. But we did see things like biology and life circumstances and wrong thinking, And we spent most of our time on the wrong thinking category, and uh, I wanted to just review those for us briefly here. We said that these kinds of wrong thinking categories uh, can be the occasions for depression in our lives. Again, we define depression as sorrow without hope. And so these things can be the, the, the prompt or the occasion for our sorrow without hope. We said misunderstanding and or misapplying grace, 
misunderstanding and or misapplying the atonement, misunderstanding and or misapplying faith, misunderstanding God, a fear of the future, and a fear of failure. And so I do want to look at one more category. Those were all under the wrong thinking category. And now we're going to look at the wrong behavior category. These wrong behaviors, and there's a list a mile long, so we're only going to look at a few of them. But these wrong behaviors can be occasions for depression or sorrow without hope. I am taking the first three of these four from uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached a sermon series in 1954 on the topic of depression. And by the way, if you are interested, this is a great book on the topic. Uh, He spends a lot longer on this topic than I'm spending. Uh, It is in book form. And it also is in audio form too, believe it or not, from 1954. I don't know if every sermon is recorded, but I know that uh, I think it's the D. Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. Some of you may have accessed that before. Uh, but at least you can get the book form. Um, it's called Spiritual Depression. So the first three of these I'm going to get from uh, him. Now, just to uh, be clear, in a future message, Lord willing, I plan on addressing some sinful responses to depression. This is going to be kind of on the other side, and there is a lot of overlap. But this is going to be more along occasions rather than response. And so the first one here is simply going to be this, impulsiveness. Again, these first three are from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He actually points to Peter's impulsive behavior as an example of this. So Peter, and poor Peter always gets uh, really just uh, hammered here in, in Scripture. I mean, he just totally gets in trouble all the time. His tendency was never to think, only to act. And so he was the first one to do something and he didn't think about it. And oftentimes he kind of, uh, you know, recoiled there a little bit and realized, oh, I kind of did something I shouldn't do. Uh, his impulsive behavior in stepping out on the water was followed by his despair and his hopelessness and his sinking. He, he didn't really think this through. Not, not to say that he shouldn't have done it, but he didn't think it through and realize, I'm trusting the Lord in this. And there are certain situations in which a high-energy, quick-decision-making temperament can, can be helpful to us. But for Peter, it had a tendency always to lead to trouble. So Lloyd-Jones comments on this and says this. What was the matter with Peter? It was the old trouble. He accepted a position without working out all its implications. Now, that is invariably the trouble with this type. This energy, this capacity for decision, this impulsiveness tends to make them do things intuitively instead of thinking them right through and understanding and grasping them. And the result is that these are violent alterations in their spiritual high, or a word for striving. Now this is very common cause of spiritual depression, and it's why we are dealing with it. So this impulsive person has, and you could probably all point to someone you know, has a tendency to live in one of two extremes. They're they're never in the middle they're either this, you know, euphoric happiness on the one side or on the other side, a dreadful depression. There's no in between. And there's a sense in which uh, if you can identify someone like this in your life, you can say that person is emotionally taxing on me. 
they're kind of draining because they're always going back and forth between these two extremes. I want to give you a couple verses on this. Proverbs 20 and verse 25 says this, is it, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. It is a snare to, to make this impulsive decision and then after the fact think, hmm, should I have actually made that promise or not? <laughs> we should think it through on the front side. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter word before God. For God's in heaven, you're on the earth, therefore let your words be few. If we never think through anything, and we are constantly impulsive, we will often live with the regrets of our decisions, and thus be depressed. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have bought this thing. I shouldn't have bought that thing. I, I, I should have thought this through a little bit more. And this actually does become a little bit of a cycle of sorts so that the more we get depressed, the more impulsive we become, and it kind of just leads to this spiral out of control because we're looking for hope. And so I make some poor decisions, and then what am I doing? I'm saying, ah, oh, I'm depressed. I just need something to give me hope. Maybe buying that new car will do it. Maybe buying this house or buying whatever, this will finally give me that hope, and it kind of spirals out of control. So that's the first one, is impulsiveness can tend to be an occasion for uh, depression or sorrow without hope. The second one is living for the wrong things. Now, this one is, um, this one is hard to, de- to detect in people, except in one situation. If that thing that they're hoping in is taken away from them, then it becomes very clear that that's the thing they were hoping in. So then let me ask you this question. What is it in your life that could be taken away from you and you would slide into depression? Whatever that is, is an idol. It is living for the wrong things. So a good example of this, there's a few of them. One example is, let's say, an athlete tears some muscle or something, and they realize they're unable to play this sport for the rest of their lives. This will tell you how much hope they put in that sport, in that thing, because if they slide into depression, then it, re- it reveals that this is something that they were uh, erecting as an idol in their lives. Um, This also is something that sometimes happened, particularly to uh, men in their retirement years, uh, because a lot of times uh, identity is connected with your job. And so you are deriving your identity from, and our culture kind of puts this on us to a degree, right? Because what is the very, like, question number two you ask when you meet someone for the first time, right? It's, hi, what's your name? Okay, what do you do for a living, right? And so that's kind of part and parcel of where our identity comes from as Americans. And so you get into your retirement years, let's say, and sometimes people have a very hard time because they don't have their identity anymore, when in fact our identity should have been coming from Christ to begin with. Um. And by the way, pastors are not exempt from this. Pastors can idolize ministry so that they're actually loving ministry more than they're loving Christ. And you can see this happen uh, in in anyone uh, when they're getting their identity from their job, their work, or whatever. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is a great verse to memorize uh, because in Jeremiah 2.13, we're reminded that sometimes we seek out things that won't satisfy us. In fact, all the time we do. Was it, remember John Calvin, what did he say? The human heart is a factory of idols. This continues to produce idols. This is Jeremiah 2.13, right here. And the list is really endless here. Um, are you living for your work? Are you living for a relationship? Are you living for your status in the community? Are you living for a hobby? Are you living for a sport? Whatever it might be. I'm going to read you an article here, part of it, on Michael Phelps. It says this, Swimmer Michael Phelps shared the story of his personal encounter with depression at a mental health conference in Chicago this week. You do contemplate suicide, the winner of 28 Olympic medals told a hushed audience at the fourth annual conference of the Kennedy Forum, a behavioral health advocacy group. 28 Olympic medals, depression. This doesn't make sense to the world. This makes perfect sense to the Christian because he's looking for his hope in the wrong place. This this should not surprise us. This should be, what else did you expect? Article continues. Asked what it takes to become a champion, Phelps, 32, immediately replied, I think that part is pretty easy. It's hard work, dedication, and not giving up. I was always hungry, hungry, and I wanted more said Phelps. I wanted to push myself really to see what my max was. Really, after every Olympics, I think I fell into a major state of depression, said Phelps, when asked to pinpoint when his trouble began. Drugs were a way of running from whatever it was I wanted to run from, he said. I would just be self-medicating myself, basically daily, to fix whatever it was that I was trying to run from. The hardest fall was after the 2012 Olympics, said Phelps. I didn't want to be in the sport anymore. I didn't want to be alive anymore. What that all-time low looked like was Phelps sitting alone for three to five days in his bedroom, not eating, barely sleeping, and just not wanting to be alive, he said. Finally, Phelps knew he needed help, and the rest of the article talks about uh, the help that he uh, sought out. You know what this tells us? Jeremiah 2.13 is real. When we seek out broken cisterns, what do we realize? They don't hold water. There is only one thing that satisfies, and it is Christ and Christ alone. The moment you begin to pursue idols outside of God, you set yourself up for depression and many more problems. Phelps needs to know the satisfaction that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Number three, lack of discipline. Lloyd-Jones says, he says this, there are so many things that distract us. You start with your morning newspaper. Many people start with two rather than one. Again, this is 1954. And then in a few hours come your evening paper or papers. Now these things are thrust upon us. Of course, we're not bound to buy paper, but it's there and everybody else does so. Perhaps it's delivered at the door. The thing is put in front of us, and without our realizing it, there's something occupying our time. I need not waste time in detailing all these things, the wireless, the television, and the things we have to do, meetings to attend, incidents here and there, various problems that arise. So Lloyd-Jones says when your newspaper is delivered to your door, it's just thrust upon you. Now, if 
this was true in 1954. It is true times 100 right now, <laughs> right? I mean, we have this times infinity. We have everything that we want in our hand at every moment of the day. If Lloyd-Jones could say that in his day, reading the morning paper and the evening paper could be a distraction, how much more today are we distracted? Now, this is not a get-rid-of-your-phone message, although some of you may need to get rid of your phone. I don't know. This is a guard-your-time message, or at least part of it. We are called to live disciplined lives, 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. We are to, pre- we are to discipline ourselves spiritually speaking. We are to say, that's not wrong, but it's not helping me spiritually, so I'm not going to pursue that. I'm going to discipline myself. Proverbs 26, 13 through 16, the sluggard says there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. I better stay inside. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It, wear, it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. It makes sense that slothfulness or lack of discipline would be an occasion for depression because God has made us for work, right? We understand that work was not a part of the curse. Work was here before the curse happened. And so God has made us for work, and therefore, when we are lazy or slothful, of course, depression is going to come because we're doing the opposite of what God has made us for. J. Adams writes this, A lazy man gets his job done only in part or not at all because he doesn't start early enough. He indulges his body and fulfills every lazy wish. But finally, the guilt of neglect, the guilt of doing work with a lick and a promise, the guilt of facing others who have depended on him, and catches up with him. Once laden down with guilt, and because of the depression that accompanies it, he finds he can't do even the work he has been doing very effectively. He slackens up still more. Thus he is caught in a cyclical downward whirlpool of despair. So he's basically saying that the more that we're lazy, the more that we become depressed, and the more we depress, the lazier we become, and it just kind of is a spiraling out of control kind of a thing. And this is the depressed person who stays in bed all day and can't get out because he's so depressed. Number four, bitterness. And this is going to be the last occasion that we're going to look at, but there's a lot more. These are just a handful of them. Ephesians chapter 4, 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Bitterness is when you don't forgive someone for something they did. Bitterness is essentially prolonged anger. It's like you get a splinter in your hand, and instead of pulling the splinter out, you constantly pick at it and leave it there. That's what bitterness is. It's allowing that anger to fester and to be prolonged, and eventually it defiles both you and everyone else around you. There's a connection seen in Psalm 73 because the psalmist is in despair, and he says this, 
In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So he's kind of in despair. I've done all this stuff in vain, and then look how bitter he is because of this in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart. And so you see the despair, despondency, depression, sorrow without hope, connected with um, his bitterness. Charles Hodges, in an article on depression, makes this connection. He tells the story of counseling a young girl, and then he says this. Her anger about the problems had led to resentment, which is bitterness, lack of forgiveness. When she could not leave that situation, her resentment eventually became discouragement, and her discouragement finally led to depression. Once the counselee, once this young girl, understood that process, her depression changed almost overnight. When she realized that there was more sins connected together than just this one, it immediately transformed where she was at. That's number four, which concludes our occasions of depression. And now we're going to transition to the cause of depression. What is the cause of depression? You remember last week, we looked at several graphs. You remember those graphs, spurious correlations? And we saw how these certain things were connected together. Uh, as an example of this, the more, that, uh, more ice cream sales there are, the more people die by drowning, right? And you say, wow, well, obviously, ice cream sales causes people to drown. No, they're correlated, but they're not, one doesn't cause the other, right? And we saw a few of those graphs to kind of demonstrate that. And so what we were doing is we were trying to be very careful in acknowledging that some things are not causes, but instead they're correlations. And so we said this is something that we have to be careful when we're looking at data and people are trying to prove a point with data that sometimes it can be proving sometimes the opposite point because two realities are just correlated with one another, not causing one another. And so that can be a point where we can miss that very easily. Um, So we were very cautious about that. I do want to say also, um, as a little bit of an aside here before I get to the cause itself, um, that as uh, hard as maybe uh, I have been on secular psychologists, not all psychologists hold to some of these extreme views that we've talked about. And I want to read to you a couple of uh, statements from an article. This article was in the Washington Post, and the title of the article is this, Against Depression, a Sugar Pill is Hard to Beat. Against depression, a sugar pill is hard to beat. So you know what a sugar pill is, right? It's a placebo, okay? So you're testing to see if medication is effective for different things, and you have this control group. You have a group that you're giving you know, the, the, the pill to. You have a group that you're giving a placebo to, and you're measuring to see how effective is the real drug compared to the sugar pill. And that will tell you how effective your real drug is. And so this article in the Washington Post has a couple of statements, and I'm going to just read to you three of them. Psychiatric diagnosis is descriptive. We don't really understand psychiatric disorders at a biological level. 
appreciate that honesty. I appreciate that. Now, sometimes, and this is why I'm saying not all secular psychologists will just go to that far extreme. Some of them are saying, okay, we don't, we don't get this. We don't understand how it works. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Next statement from the article. St. John's wort, and by the way, this is a natural antidepressant um, that is sometimes used to fight depression. Uh, St. John's wort fully cured 24% of the depressed people who received it, and Zoloft cured 25%, but the placebo fully cured 32%. (laughs) So the placebo is outperforming both the natural antidepressant, St. John's War, and Zoloft. And then, again, the article, same article, says people's belief in the power of antidepressants may explain why they do well on placebos. Think about that for a second. 32% people cured of depression who were on a sugar pill. That's significant. It's outperforming the actual thing. After referencing this study that the Washington Post was talking about, Charles Hodge says this. In a similar study, when those who had gotten better on a placebo learned that they were not receiving an active drug, most of them became depressed again. So they, they gave them the sugar pill, and it cured their depression. And then they said, oh, by the way, you were one of the people receiving the placebo. You've just been having a sugar pill. And guess what happened? They got depressed again. <laughs> it is safe to say that antidepressants do affect people while they are taking them. There's something, pardon the pun, psychological going on. <laughs> there's, there's something going on that says, this is going to cure me. And then they're, quote, unquote, cured. Hodges then writes this. Um, Many patients have been told that they have chemical imbalances in their brains. They often come to believe that medications can correct these imbalances. These are difficult, perhaps impossible things to prove. Remember spurious correlations? Difficult, perhaps impossible things to prove. At the time of this writing... No research has been done or can be done to measure the levels of serotonin in the living human brain. Because of this, the chemical imbalance theory regarding the cause of depression in humans should not be viewed as being firmly factual. It is largely based on associations, even suppositions. This is confirmed even more by another article, or a study, actually, that Ed Welch has brought to our attention. And he comments on the study and says this, it is worth noting the other implication of the new generation of placebo research. The placebo effect, when it is from a pill, is increasing at the rate of about 7% each decade. In other words, if 30% of a group of depressed people responded to placebos in 1970, 50% of that group would respond to them today. That's pretty remarkable. 30% in 1970, placebos helped them get better. Now 50% helps them get better. Such use of placebos suggests that as a culture, we are, and here's the key statement here, highlight, underline, putting more and more hope in our pills. The placebo effect is a measure of our confidence 
the trust we place in a particular object. Now, just like we want to be cautious in not overstating our case, we want to encourage secular psychologists to do the very same thing. Just because brain changes are observed in depressed persons, we need to be cautious about how much causation we draw from that. Sure, depressed people's minds change in some ways, but did the depression cause the change in the mind? Did the change in the mind cause the depression, or are both caused by something else? These are the questions that are not being asked that we have to ask. Um, The fact that placebos are so successful and increasing in their success rate should make us be a little bit more cautious in how much success we ascribe to antidepressant medication. And that is why we have tried very hard to make a distinction between causes and occasions, okay? So all of that, sorry for all those extra quotes, a lot more quotations today than I normally do. But I want to help you to see that there is a tendency to overstate a case. There's a tendency to draw causation in places where we shouldn't be drawing causation. Does the Bible have something to say about this? And this is where it brings us to our point, the cause of depression. If that's not the cause of it, then what is the cause? Will we be so bold to put our finger on one cause of depression? Yes. There are many occasions of depression, but I am going to identify one cause. And this cause is going to parallel our definition from Jim Berg, and it also is going to be taken from Psalm 42 and verse 5 that we'll see in just a second. Do you remember our definition of depression? I've already mentioned a couple times today. Sorrow without hope. And so if that's the definition of depression, sorrow without hope, and we're looking at this hope theme, then what possibly could be the cause of depression? It has something to do with hope. Something to do with hope put in the wrong place. And so we're going to call the cause of depression misplaced hope. It is simply that I have put my hope in the wrong things. Psalm 42 and verse 5 says this. And this is kind of our theme verse for this series that we keep coming back to. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Why are you cast down? Why do you have sorrow without hope? Why are you depressed? Hope in God. Stop and hope in God. I want to note specifically that God is the object. God is the object. Hope in what? God. Now, what I want to do is I want to connect the cause of depression with all the occasions that we saw before. I want to show that in each instance, what's really going on is misplaced hope. We saw four main categories. We saw biology, life circumstances, wrong thinking, 
and wrong behavior. In each of these four categories, what is happening is you have a misplaced hope. So for the biology part, we looked at Elijah and his misplaced hope. You remember this in 1 Kings 19 when he was depressed? He himself went a day's journey in the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die depressed, saying, It's enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And what did we say that he needed? He needed sleep in a sandwich, right? Which is what God gave him. We said, but, but why does he need to be better than his father's? He wasn't thinking clearly, and he was hoping in the wrong thing. Instead of hoping in God, he was hoping in his own achievement. I'm not better than my father's. Why do you need to be better than your father's? Why are you hoping in that? And so his hope was misplaced. We also looked at the life circumstances. There's tons of ways that you have misplaced hope there. If you're depressed when you lose your job, then your hope was in your job. Misplaced hope. We looked at the wrong thinking categories, and I'm just going to give you some of these here. Misunderstanding and or misapplying grace. Where's your misplaced hope? In your achievement. You don't understand God's grace, then you're putting hope in your own achievement. Misunderstanding and or misapplying the atonement. Misplaced hope in self-atonement. If you don't understand the fact that Christ's atonement was once for all insufficient and enough, then where's your hope going to be? I can atone for my own sin. And we saw some examples from that last week. Misunderstanding and or misapplying faith. Where's the misplaced hope there? It's in my works. You don't understand that this is by faith alone in your understanding your own works. Misunderstanding God, what's the misplaced hope there in yourself? You misunderstand God himself, and you're going to start to hope in yourself. Uh, We talked about fear of the future. If you have a fear of the future, where's your hope? Where is your misplaced hope? If you're afraid that you're going to die tomorrow, or you could die tomorrow, or something could happen to you tomorrow, where is your misplaced hope? It's in security. It's in safety. i got to be safe and secure. Fear of failure, where's your misplaced hope there? You have a misplaced hope in your personal success. I can do this myself. I'm going to succeed. Well, what if I fail? Your hope is in the wrong place. Impulsiveness, you have a misplaced hope in your intuition. I have the intuition. I can, I'm the one who can navigate this situation. That's not where your hope should be. Living for the wrong things, we saw that today. Where's the misplaced hope? In my identity in my job or whatever it might be. Lack of discipline, where's my misplaced hope? In my leisure, in my rest, in my relaxation. This is where I get my hope from. Bitterness or lack of forgiveness, where's your misplaced hope? In vengeance. Vengeance is the key. I need to get revenge for what happened. I need them to pay for this. That's where my hope is in that situation. And so in each of these occasions, so you understand what we're doing with this, We have occasions for depression, and we have the cause of depression, and each occasion is evidencing somewhere, somehow, that cause of misplaced hope. Um, We want to encourage people to correct their thinking. Now, I will say, again, um, I have noticed that secular psychology has moved in the last few years, and they have moved away from 
kind of the um, the uh, biological causation theories, and they have moved closer to more cognitive theories, which basically means this. Psychologists today are less and less saying it's because of a chemical imbalance, and they're more and more saying you just have wrong thinking. Uh, the The cure to this in the secular psychology world is CBT. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, there's, I think there's some good in this change and there's some not so good in this change. The, The good is that there's a recognition of what Christians have been saying for centuries. And that is, you got to just stop thinking that way and start thinking truth. And this is actually, um, in fact, some things, when I was doing my study on OCD, uh, one of the things that I learned was many psychologists go to CBT first before they will go to any kind of drugs for this. And the CBT for them looks like this. They simply say, you had that thought. Is that thought true? No, it's not true. What is true? This is true. Okay, start thinking about this thought instead of that thought. It's basically what it is. Now, that's good, except the only difference we want to make sure we distinguish here is that the content of the truth is important. So when we are giving truth to people, we want to be giving them theological truth from God's word. So you can see it's a little bit of a good shift, but kind of not a good shift if you're not pointing people to the word of God. And that's where it needs to be. And so this is really, and, and I, 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 say, I say this um, to, to say that Um, not everything. We can't broad brush stroke everyone to think in this extreme view. Sometimes it's not uh, maybe quite as bad as we think it is. But the point remains, when we help people in their thinking, we have to point them to what? Scripture. Because that's where the hope is. So as we wrap up today, I want to do a couple of things here. First, I want to remind us of where we've been so far. What's the definition of depression? Sorrow without hope. What's the uh, cause, or yeah, the cause of depression? Misplaced hope. Do you see a direction we're going in here? Both these statements have the word what in them, the word hope. You see this has something to do with hope. That's the first thing I want to remind us of. The second thing is I want to give us this hope today. There are, in this sermon series, two things that I'm going to say that I think are at the top of the list in terms of controversial. I haven't said either of them yet. (laughs) So if something that I've said you think is controversial, there's two things that are more controversial than that. that I have not said yet. One of those things I'm going to tell you right now, and the other one of those things I'm going to save for a future sermon. Okay? Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't want to... I don't say this because um, I want to be a controversial person. I say this because this is coming from Scripture... And I think that this increases our hope instead of decreases our hope. And the first very controversial thing that I'm going to say is this. You are responsible for your depression. Now, here's what I mean by that. 
So, so hear me out for just a moment. If depression is caused, if we are correct in saying that depression is caused by misplaced hope, okay? If depression is misplaced hope, who's doing the misplacing? That's on you. That's on me. If that's what causes depression... Again, depression is sorrow without hope. So we're not saying that we shouldn't be sorrowful. We should have sorrow. We're saying depression is something different because it's sorrow without hope. And if depression is caused by your misplaced hope, then you are depressed because you put hope in the wrong place to start with. Right? Depression is like the check engine light of the car. Okay? Um the check engine light tells you that there's a problem with the car. You don't put duct tape on top of that check engine light. You open up the engine and you see what's wrong with the car. And your depression is being caused by misplaced hope. And so when you become depressed, you say, check engine light's on. Let me get under the hood and see what's going on here. Oh, here's the problem. I was putting hope here. I shouldn't have been putting it there. Let me fix that. The reason that this is a controversial statement is because we have been so trained by our culture to believe that depression is something that happens to us in the same way that a cold happens to us. And the reason, the other reason that this is controversial is because we're making this claim, you are guilty instead of innocent. That's the claim. If depression happens to us in the same way that a cold happens to us, there is no hope. There's no hope. There is no uniform answer from the secular world on what the answer is. But if you are responsible for your depression, then there is hope because you can turn to Christ and be cured. I'm trying to give you hope today. I'm, try- I'm not trying to rob hope from you. I'm telling you that Christ is enough. I'm telling you that he's the answer. If depression is caused by something else, then Christ is not the answer, and you have no hope. You can turn to Christ and be cured. But here's the reality. Some people would prefer, instead of saying, yes, I'm guilty for what I have done to cause this, I turn to Christ and find hope. Some people would prefer to be innocent and in bondage than guilty and free. Why? Because victimhood is preferable to freedom. We like to be victims. And as the famous Calvin reminds us, and of course not John Calvin, but the highly respected Calvin 
from the Calvin and Hobbes comics, <laughs> we have this. Calvin comes to his dad and says, I've concluded that nothing bad I do is my fault. Of course, dad says, oh. He says, right, being young and impressionable, I'm the helpless victim of countless bad influences. An unwholesome culture panders to my undeveloped values and pushes me to maleficence. I take no responsibility for my behavior. I'm an innocent pawn. It's society's fault. Uh, This is actually Rousseau right here, actually. It's society's fault. And then, of course, Dad, in his wisdom, says, then you need to build more character. (laughs) Go shovel the walk. (laughs) It's a good father right there. And then Calvin says these discussions never go where they're supposed to. (laughs) Now, why is that funny? Because, Because there's truth in it. You see that in our culture. You see our culture doing that. You know our culture is doing that. We know our culture is doing that. This is, this is the spirit of the age right now, victimhood. I want to remind us of something as we wrap up today. Psalm 42 in verse 5 is a rebuke. It is a rebuke. Look at the verse. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you turmoil with me? Hope in God. He's rebuking himself. This is not a look for the inner peace within and find hope within. He's saying, stop it. And once again, because I'm saving a whole sermon for the cure to depression... I'm not going to go into detail on the cure today. But, once again, as I have committed to you, I'm not going to leave you hopeless today. I'm going to give you something, and that's kind of what my goal is. Each time, I want to give you just a little piece of the cure, and then, by God's grace, when we get to that final sermon, is to give you kind of the whole, the whole pie, so to speak. And so, I'm going to give you one application for, for today, and uh, here's the application. When you are depressed, rebuke yourself for your misplaced hope and transfer your hope to God himself. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 in verse 5. He is preaching God's word to himself. There's a difference, there's a difference between listening to yourself and preaching to yourself. You understand what that difference is? The difference is the content of the message. Listening to yourself is listening to all your depressed thoughts and woe is me and blah, 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 well, woe is you. That is true. (laughs) But preaching to yourself is now taking the content of God's word and applying it to your situation and, and telling yourself, stop it. Stop it. Trust in God. Lean on Christ. Put your hope in him. And of course, this is where we are to be. This is where our hope is supposed to be. Christ is enough. Turn to him. Thank you, Lord, for today and for your word and for the hope that you give to us. We need you desperately.
we don't understand how much we need you. And so help us to understand that today. Help us to look to you and find satisfaction in Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.